Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this morning I had to write to an Airbnb host to explain why there was a big bag of lube in her flat. (laughs) (laughs) I did wonder when we left that. She may take that Uh, as an insult. She may take that as a, jeez, thanks. She might have a lovely time. Well, I can tell you that she did did comment on us as guests this morning. Did she slide into your DMs? (laughs) 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 Sorry, I just did a proper... (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and last week someone on Twitter suggested me as caretaker prime minister. So thanks for the ego boost, you crazy, crazy bastard. She's going to be impossible to live with now. Mm. Shh, I'm in charge. And I'm Jen Offord, and were my story to be told on the packaging of a food item, it would probably be against us pasty. Are you mainly carbs? <laughs> um, yes. Do you hang around in late night petrol stations? Yes. Okay. She's right then. Later on, we chat to Susie K. Quinn about the lies we tell mothers. That's going to be a long conversation, isn't it? <laughs> I talked to Kimberly Hamilton about her books for kids, writing biographies of animals, and the joys of, just the joys of cats and dogs. Aww. It's what we need in these troubled times. I'm talking all things athletics and Jenny off the blocks. And we asked some burning <laughs> well questions about books in this week's Dunleavy Does Dystopia as we watch Fahrenheit 451. But first, mmm, delicious fried racism. Who killed Jeffrey and Cheryl Cole for Prime Minister? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Well, we have literally no fucking idea what the fuck is going on any fucking more. Fuck! Seconded. What I do know is that Project Fear continues apace with news of severe delays to medicine, food and petrol supplies coming from a leaked government report. Bloody scaremongers putting the willies up everyone again for no re- uh, uh, Hang on. Hang on. How is it Project Fear when it's from an official government report? Well, according to people who, I don't know, eat cat hair or genuinely think they're Napoleon, these probable consequences of a no-deal withdrawal coming from government-funded research are just more grist for the fear mill and fever dream Ramonas need to jog on and start an allotment already. Indeed, getting my potatoes planted is exactly why I don't have time to go into the name Operation Yellowhammer. Sure, nice work. Anyway, this all ties in nicely with everything else we know about the current situation, which I think Hannah's able to clear up for us. I am, yes, indeed. So what exactly is going on with Brexit? The good news is that this bit is going to be really easy to explain because nobody has any fucking idea. The only thing that makes any sense anymore is that the new leader of UKIP is called Dick Brain. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, you couldn't make it up. You couldn't. Did you see Les Durance? There's a new Brexit party candidate called Les Durance. Les Durance, put on your red shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so we were in Edinburgh for a few days, and it turns out, lasses, in that time, we were going to have a unity government... Corbyn as Prime Minister, Ken Clark as Prime Minister, Harriet Harman as Prime Minister, a second referendum, a no-deal Brexit and a general election. But a lot like a drunk on the circle line, we might have covered a lot of ground, but we still wake up to find ourselves roughly in the same place we were when we last had any idea what the fuck was going on. God, I'm saying fuck a lot. Fuck! I mean, why not let's have the now redundant Madame Two Swords waxwork of Cheryl Cole as PM? It can't possibly do a worse job than anyone else. And there might still be some people who'd actually be prepared to be in the same photograph. As a type, which might be out of date by the time I speak, 
the government is said to be planning another election. Not another one! (laughs) Because the last few have ended so well. According to a report in The Guardian, Tory advisers are being put under pressure to come up with manifesto ideas quickly. Which sounds like absolutely the right way to do that job. Fucking Christ. Quickly. (laughs) I, I feel Brenda's pain. I have election fatigue, Brexit fatigue, just fucking fatigue, to be honest. Any other departments cheering you up, Jen? Well, let's go to the Home Office, shall we? Uh. <laughs> Quite. Uh, it was criticised last week as it announced a new policy designed at tackling rising levels of knife crime among young people. The government department was accused of racism or stupidity or perhaps both. Certainly not an either-or scenario. After it announced it would be sending branded hashtag knife-free boxes to chicken shops across England and Wales. The boxes would include real-life stories of people who've been involved in knife crime to provide a bit of light reading alongside your combo meal. This reminds me of that really funny joke in Orange is the New Black where they're chasing the chicken. Really in the early first season where they're chasing a chicken because there's a rumour it's got drugs inside it. And they are, at this point in Orange in the New Black, hanging around largely along racial lines. And the white girls are really concerned that the black girls are going to find it. And Red says, oh, you know, those black girls, they, they won't be able to stay away from those chickens. And Piper says to her, don't you think it's a bit racist, suggesting that all black people like chicken? And she said, no, it's because they're all on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so the... The most recent government statistics from March 2018 to 19 showed the instance of knife crime across England and Wales had risen by 8% on the previous year, leaving politicians scratching their heads as they tried to find solutions, though many, including MP for Tottenham, David Lammy, wondered if a more appropriate response might be to, I don't know, shall we increase a bit of funding for youth services, for example? No, chicken boxes. No, chicken boxes, absolutely. Lammy said the Home Office is using taxpayers' money to sponsor an age-old trope. Boris Johnson, and I'd forgotten about this, Boris Johnson has already called black people pickaninnies with watermelon smiles. What the fuck? Now his government is pushing the stereotype that black people love fried chicken. This ridiculous stunt is either explicitly racist or, at best, unfathomably stupid. I'll go back to your previous point of it's not an either or scenario it's those really two not. are not mutually exclusive in this government it's really not a u.s medical examiner has ruled that the death in jail of billionaire nonce and friend <laughs> to the stars jeffrey epstein was caused by suicide which absolutely clears all that up right yeah right <laughs> <laughs> while most of the world is bogged down in one of about nine different conspiracy theories, even the more cautious of thinkers couldn't help but remark that his death couldn't have been more convenient if it had come with a free shuttle service to the airport. (laughs) But maybe it did. (gasps) Gasp. Even seemingly rational people, among which I count myself, were heard to utter that they wondered if Epstein had been allowed to commit suicide. And seemingly irrational people, amongst which I count Donald Trump, were retweeting claims it was the Clintons what did it. Presumably to distract from claims it was him, leaving more experienced conspiracy theorists to go bigger with the claim that it wasn't really Epstein's body at all and that he had flown to freedom, leaving a, I don't know, dummy, impersonator, whatever, in his place. Or maybe it was the Queen. He left the Queen in his place. (laughs) Although I struggle to buy that one, given that in the long run, if the royal family was going to kill someone to stop embarrassment coming to them, it would have been a lot easier to kill the Duke of York. (laughs) 
All of which is lots of fun to make jokes about. Unless, of course, you're one of the women now denied justice. Probably the least mentioned people in this whole sorry saga. But what about the shape of his ears, right? Mm. Someone had put on Twitter two articles from the Daily Mail, I presume in the last week, one of which was about Prince Andrew. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, you probably missed all of that stuff that happened with Epstein. It's probably, uh, yeah, poor him. Bit awkward to look like you might be associated with that. And then another article they published was about Meghan Markle enjoying avocado on toast. What a twat, eh? And was she, in fact, responsible for, like, climate change and shit like that? But, Jen, this is the thing that you need to understand, Mm -hmm. right? On the one hand, right, you can eat avocados. Yeah. And on the other hand, you can fuck children, right? (laughs) What is the more evil? Exactly. I mean, great minds could discuss this forever, I think. (laughs) Absolutely. Elsewhere... Brexit campaigner and all-round human stain Aaron Banks was causing a ruckus last week as he appeared to wish death on climate change activist Greta Thunberg. Retweeting a good luck message from Green Party MP Caroline Lucas to Thunberg as the 16-year-old embarked on a two-week carbon-neutral sail across the Atlantic Ocean, Banks commented, Freak yachting accidents do happen in August, dot, dot, dot. That's right, about a 16-year-old. It's classy, isn't it? Mm. And Lucas quite rightly reported him to Twitter. Banks, however, couldn't understand the furore, exclaiming on Twitter, It was a joke. You lefties have no sense of humour. Fucking snowflake. Absolutely. But, as the excellent Victoria Corrin Mitchell pointed out via the same social media platform, Banks had quite different opinions on humour when it came to Joe Brand's quip earlier this year that people might throw battery acid over politicians instead of milkshakes. When he said... A funny comment is comparing a woman wearing a burqa to a letterbox. (laughs) Not suggesting throwing acid over someone. Well, humour is subjective after all, isn't it? Well, just to be clear, it's only funny if it's racist. That seems to be the thing. Only funny if it's racist or... Yeah. Look, look, Jen, I don't know, but on one hand you can eat avocados, (laughs) on this hand you can fuck children, on another hand you You can can be be Aaron Banks. Which is the real evil here? (laughs) I saw a great tweet from uh, Ian Dunt, who does the Romaniacs podcast, about um, that speech Nigel Farage gave last week, um, mm. in which he was saying that basically Meghan Markle has ruined Prince Harry because he used to be this fun-loving guy that turned yes. up turned up dressed <laughs> as a Nazi, and now he's really boring. And Ian Dunt was like, just to be clear, he likes the racist Harry. <laughs> he doesn't like the Harry with a brown wife. On one hand, Hannah. Yeah. Disney's live-action remake of Mulan, which actually did pretty well in Dunleavy Does Disney. Hipster dad. Hipster dad. (laughs) Anyway, it's facing calls for boycott after its star, Crystal Liu, voiced support for police in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is two months into a political crisis. So this was initially kicked off by a controversial bill that would have allowed extraditions to mainland China, where the Communist Party controls the courts. But it has since evolved into a wider pro-democracy movement with a push for full democracy within the city. In response to this, police have meted out increasingly aggressive tactics against the many pro-democracy demonstrators, repeatedly firing tear gas and rubber bullets. A woman has lost an eye. It's all pretty nasty. So where is Crystal Liu in all this and why are people so furious with her? Liu reportedly posted a message on the Chinese social media site Weibo, which translated as... I also support Hong Kong police. You can beat me up now. And in English, she added, what a shame for Hong Kong. OK, so I get why people are pissed off with her. Supporting police brutality is, you know, pretty far from a good look. But I am genuinely not sure what boycotting a film not out until next March 
achieves in this particular scenario? Given how Twitter reacts like mosquito bites, do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? By March, I'm wondering whether anyone who's now saying that they would boycott it will not have some other hobby horse to be riding by then. Yeah. Plus, when you boycott something that's made by thousands of people in order to punish one person. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that was pretty interesting, as far as I'm concerned, is Jackie Chan has been fairly vocal in that he is an anti what the police are doing and yet hasn't faced quite the same amount of shit as Crystal Lou. Well, I mean... On the one hand. (laughs) (laughs) I've got some more on harmful stereotyping. As US food company Mondelez and German car manufacturer VW made history last week as they became the first companies to have adverts banned in the UK under new rules around gender stereotyping. So the rules, which came into force in June, mean that adverts which feature harmful gender stereotypes can be banned. I think we've talked about it on this very podcast. We have indeed. In the past. Which is exactly what happened after 128 people complained to the Advertising Standards Authority about Mondelez's advert for its Philadelphia cheese spread. The offending advert features two men leaving a baby on a conveyor belt in a restaurant after becoming distracted by the food, which complainants said perpetuated the stereotype that men were incapable of caring for children. And three people complained about VW's ad for its e-golf car, which showed... Loads of men doing all sorts of exciting things like the long jump and uh, while a woman sat on a bench next to a pram. Jess Ty of the ASA defended the watchdog's position on the BBC's Today programme where she was asked what the harm of such adverts could be. She said ads that specifically contrast male and female stereotypes need to be handled with care. It's about thinking about what the cumulative effect of those gender stereotypes might be, adding that the organisation had found there was real-world harm associated with such potentially limiting stereotypes. Because who knew, right? Yeah, I saw a lot of chat on this, as I think LBC or somewhere else that, you know, people who scratch their groins gather. Uh, No, it was Humphreys. It was Humphreys. It was was the Today programme. Yeah, he said... He um, was a... His in, I listened to it this morning. His interview of her was very combative and I thought he oh, sounded like a, a right prick. And he said that, you know, women do, like, are better at looking after kids. And I just... It, it, oh, it drives me mad. In fact, so mad I didn't even get involved in it. Because And later on we're talking to Susie K. Quinn about the lies we tell mothers. <laughs> because the thing is, I could understand why possibly you might say that a mother is more organised at looking after her her... her children than a man is if that man doesn't actually do it as often as that woman and hasn't put the graft in it's not like we're born i mean i haven't got kids my brother has my brother's a single dad he's way better at looking after kids than i am let's have a little bit of light relief in what could well be a vision of food foraging post-brexit britain new zealanders have been warned not to lick pavements Okay, so Kiwis haven't reached drastic levels of hunger yet, but they are being tempted by green footpaths because it turns out a particular variety of lichen could well give you the horn. Botanists in New Zealand have advised that while the native lichen has properties analogous to Viagra, it's also toxic, so eating it is a dangerous no-no. And given the lichen, which is officially called Xanthoparmelia scabrosa, but has been ingeniously named Sexy Pavement Lichen (laughs) by Dr. Alison Knight, is mostly found on pavements in urban areas, it's also more than likely to be contaminated with hazards such as urine, exhaust fumes, or even lead, soon to be the UK's top five food types, (laughs) even though there's only three of them. Anybody want a bit of good news? Yes, please. Well, I don't know if it counts as good news, but it's certainly heartwarming news, which might be the best we can hope for right now. 
Remember the mass shooting in El Paso earlier this month? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's a shame you have to specify which mass shooting you mean, but here we are. Among the victims was 63-year-old Margie Rickard, who left a husband of 22 years, Antonio Basco, and children from a previous marriage who don't live locally. Concerned there may be next to no mourners at his wife's funeral, Mr Basco asked the funeral home to put a message on social media saying that all were welcome. And this weekend, more than a 1,000 people of all ages, all ethnicities, all faiths queued in temperatures in the high 30s to offer their condolences to her widow and hundreds more sent flowers to the service. Oh, that's lovely. Isn't it? I saw an interview Henry Rollins had given last week in which he said that he actually believed that Trump presidency would make America a better place. And almost immediately everyone was like, what the fuck? But, of course, what he meant was exactly stuff like this. Yeah, people reacting to it with kindness. Yeah. We can but hope. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we look at new research and really, really have to work on our surprise face. Recent research has discovered, and I am using that word very loosely indeed, that men are more likely to victim blame women who are sexually harassed because they are more empathetic to other men. Well, knock me down with a feather. I'll be damned. Heavens to Murgatroyd, (laughs) etc. The researchers from the universities of Exeter, Bath and Queensland say the findings of the paper, which was published in a journal called Psychology of Women Quarterly, highlights a dark side to empathy, and that is a quote. It turns out that men and women show equal levels of empathy for female victims of sexual harassment, but men are far more likely to see things from the male perpetrator's point of view. Knock me down with a feather. (laughs) I'll be damned. Heavens to Murgatroyd, (laughs) etc. The academics wrote... Accusations of in-group wrongdoing, as in the case of a man's sexual harassment of a woman, may pose a threat to men's sense of their gender group as moral. To reduce this threat, men may afford male perpetrators the benefit of the doubt and interpret events in a way that is biased towards that perpetrator's perspective. All I can say is thank goodness we are not seeing any real-life examples of this happening in a way that contributes to low rates of reporting of sexual harassment among women on a, you know, fucking hourly basis. Oh, wait... Knock me down with a feather. I'll be damned. Heavens to Murgatroyd, etc. Hey there, you lot. If you're wondering how you can join in on the fun of a live standard issue podcast, well, you're in luck because I'm here to tell you our next live show will be at King's Place in London as part of the London Podcast Festival. And we are absolutely chuffed to bits because we will be joined by comedian and disability rights activist Tanya Lee Davis, as well as journalist and co-author of the brilliant Slay in Your Lane, Yomi Adegaki. And that will be on September the 15th. You can find out more information on this and how to get tickets by visiting our website www.standardissuepodcast.com please do get a ticket it's my birthday and i will as the song goes cry if i want to technically it was her party not her birthday but same difference right hi anna here i am in the tiny press yurts which they call the turt <laughs> at the Edinburgh Book Festival with author Kimberly Hamilton. Hello. Nice to meet you. If you can hear a bit of background noise, that is the Edinburgh weather tick-tapping on our roof and the bar, which is <laughs> next door. I'm holding a copy of your book, Rebel Cats, Brave Tales of Feisty Felines, which, along with your book, which is the equivalent of the dogs, <laughs> was sent to me. My first thought was, which child do I know am I going to give these to? And then they're so bloody lovely, Kimberly, I decided I wanted to keep them 
for myself. Oh, that's great to hear. Every author wants to hear that. Have you always been a cat, dog, pet, animal person? I've always loved animals, and I had a dog when I was a child, but um, I never had a cat until about five years ago. And I was going through a divorce, and I was living in a big house by myself, and a friend said, you need some cats. By the end of the day, I had two cats, which, you know, I don't recommend that. You actually should think about owning a pet because a cat can live, you know, more than 20 years. You know, it was a big commitment. But so we're heading home and I've got two cats meowing in the back seat. And I actually had to stop and buy a Cats for Dummies book because I literally had no idea what to do with these cats. Did it just say, just they do what they want? (laughs) (laughs) It's a very short book, but they've changed my life. I mean, it it was lovely having them, and I can't imagine not having a pet now after having a pet. It just seemed like your house wouldn't have a soul without without an animal. I agree completely. I I had a pet. He lived till he was 19. I'd got it from a rescue place, so I only had him for 13 years. And, I mean, obviously I was very upset when he when he died but also I realised things about myself like how much I actually talk to myself mm-hmm. when I, I, would, I, was, I would address whatever random thought right. I had to him I'd say oh Frank I've had ever such a hard day <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly I had nothing to talk to right. Right, and I'm that way too because I work at home as well yeah. as a writer. So they are my companions. I mean, they're just with me all day long. And it's just, I can't imagine writing without them now. Do they actually let you write or do they lie all over the keyboard? They, my cat Scout actually lies on top of my arms while I'm typing. And sometimes he steps on the keyboard. So sometimes I have to go back and edit out Scout's uh, edits, uh-huh. <laughs> Scout's addition to whatever I'm writing and stuff. But I love it. I just love having a cat right next to me on my desk while yeah. I'm writing. So. We have a massive schedule for our podcast for like who's on, who's interviewing who, what we're using where. And my cat, Joan, Joan who is very weird, name. managed to literally walk across my keyboard and do control A, delete as she went and the whole no. thing went. And I was like, oh, this is going to sound like I made this up. The cat did it, the cat did it, I didn't do it. We did manage to get it back. That happened to Andrew Lloyd Webber. Did you ever really? hear this story? No. He was writing, I think it was the sequel to Cats, and his kitten, I think it was named Oscar, was like a little white kitten, ran across the keyboard and deleted the entire score that he was working on. <laughs> the and irony. Yes. I mean, yeah, everyone's like, what happened to the cat afterwards? And he's like, I forgave the cat. He went on and rewrite it. Wow. So you are not alone uh, in that. You so. always forgive them because they just look at you with really big eyes. And you, so you have... Two cats. I have four cats. Four cats. I have four. I brought, um, I used to live in California, now I live in Scotland, and I brought three over with me. I call them the California cats. I wasn't leaving them behind. There's, they were my family. Yeah. And then uh, I now have a fourth cat who is a Scottish cat, a big uh. ex-barn cat um, who loves to play outside in the snow, completely different from my, my three. So, uh, yeah, I've got four now. Yeah, crazy cat lady. I'm a crazy cat lady, and I'm proud to say it. So. <laughs> Uh, that's interesting <laughs> I live by myself and I think how many cats is the level that I'm going to be classed as that woman with all the cats yeah, yeah. in Australia I'm there and I'm proud <laughs> join join the team brilliant so. can I ask you as an American and now you live here I've lived abroad and I've been to other countries and I'm not sure that other nations are quite as weird 
about animals as we are. Is that something you've seen or, or I wouldn't say weird. I think it's great. And but the but the British people do love their pets. Yeah. You know, and it's rare for me to meet someone over here that doesn't have a dog or a cat or something, unless they're like highly allergic to it or something. Yeah. Everyone's got something. And I think that's great. And I've lived abroad as well. Like I lived in Japan for a while and I didn't know many people in Japan that had a pet. They did. It wasn't a dog. It was usually a cat just because of the small spaces yeah. that they had over there. There's a lot of Americans I know with pets, but a lot that don't have. But over here, almost the majority of the people I know over here have a pet of some kind. Yeah. So I think it's the reputation stands, you know, yeah. that Britain I, is a nation of animal lovers. It's true. And you're right. It's not weird. It's just we sometimes are. I know people who sleep in an inch of their bed because their animals sleep <laughs> in the rest of it. <laughs> right there, <laughs> guilty as charged. And yeah, I meet Australians who say, what? Make it sleep in its own bed. Oh, no. And you, yeah. no. Someone asked me, I just uh, I just did a little lecture here and one of the kids in the in the audience asked if, where my pets slept and I'm like, right on my pillow. Scout, I know, I sometimes sleep with my head on my cat you know so i guess if that's weird i don't know i'm i'm embracing it i'm going with it brilliant so tell me how did you go from being a pet lover to writing books for children about pets well the first one i i was reading an article somewhere and they just mentioned a cat that had gone into outer space and i was like how come I've never heard about this no, I've animal? Heard about the dog. I've heard about the dogs. You've heard about chimpanzees. Yeah. You've heard, never heard about a cat. So I did some research. And I found out it's true. France was the only country that sent a little cat up into space during the space race of the 1960s. And it was just kind of a, a moment for me. I'm like, what other animals are out there that people don't know about? What other great stories are there? Like the unsung heroes of history, which I love unsung heroes. So I started looking and I just found one and then I found another one and another one and before you knew it I kind of had a, a book together you know and I just picked out my 30 favorite stories yeah. and they're all different countries different time periods different kinds of stories but I just felt that they all animals just inspire me in ways that humans often don't so um yeah I just wanted to kind of collect them all in one one book I'm just waiting for any animal to become intelligent enough that they can take over um, because we're doing such a terrible I job know, of it right? as human beings. Right. Monkeys, dogs, I don't care who it is, right. I, will, I will answer to them if they rise up. Was it difficult to find the information? Writing a biography of a pet is not the Because they can't talk. Yes. You can't get like an autobiography of them. Yeah. Sometimes you have to fill in the gaps a little bit. It was kind of like being a history detective, kind of, you know, trying to like get into the mind of an animal and stuff and it's like the, the dog book there was more information about dogs out there they've been domesticated a lot longer yeah. than cats we have a longer relationship with them and the cat book was a little harder sometimes cats through history don't have names or they're just mentioned here and there you just get little mentions of them whereas dogs sometimes there's more information out there so the cat book was quite quite like a scavenger hunt trying yeah. to put the pieces together and stuff but uh, it was so rewarding when it actually happened you know do you have a favorite story or is that like saying do you have a favorite cat well they're all my favorite stories but there are some in there that stick out for me like there's a there's a cat in there a scottish cat which now that i live in scotland i kind of had a special affinity for that one towser towser is the deadliest distillery cat she has a Guinness Book of World Records, and I was just—I had to go to the distillery to learn about this cat and see her statue there and find out her story. But she is credited with killing 
28,899 mice in her 24-year career. So they had the team come out there, and they watched her, and they guesstimated that's how many she killed over the course of her career. So she'll probably have that that title forever. Yeah. There'll never be another distillery cat like Towser. So I kind of have a, ses- a spot, spot for her. She's like a, you know, a feline 007, <laughs> you, know, you know? So she's great. I was I was thinking the other day because I saw the most brilliant picture of, of Larry, the number 10. Cat. Yes, he's so great. I found Just him. lying out in the yes. street looking exhausted. And he has seen off so many prime ministers and I really like the idea that actually in a time of of almost sort of mass insecurity in the country, there is one thing that is solid, and that's that cat. One constant, yeah. And that cat is still there. Right, right. I love all the number 10 cats. I wrote about Humphrey Humphrey, in there, you know, but they all have such great stories and stuff, but it's just like, I just want them to be able to talk. I mean, the stories they'd be able to tell would be just amazing, but yeah, prowling the corridors of power, that cat, so. There's such gorgeous illustrations in this book as well. There were were 15 different artists. Yeah. illustrated the book so that was actually one of my favorite parts of the book was Scholastic sent me the portfolios of all the artists Um, they said match the cat or the dog to the artist which was so so they each got to do two two cats and two dogs each so it was fun to see their styles and try which one will best capture the personality of this one and then there was an artist that did the cover and then one that did kind of all the spot illustrations throughout so there were 17 artists that worked on it so it was kind of like a village yeah to, to make the rebel books you know but it was a it was a labor of love I, I really love writing those books and I'm writing a third one are you yeah so I've done rebel dogs rebel cats and um, there's still other stories about other animals so there'll be rebel animals next so, right. like, heroic sheep. I've had one child ask me today to make sure there was a hamster in it. So I have to find a heroic hamster now. So some hamster with an interesting life story. <laughs> I'm on it. So if anyone <laughs> has God any ideas, <laughs> please send them on in. So, But that's going to be a, a, a kick to write. So. And you've just been doing a Q&A with some children. Yes. Um, children are responding to these. They yes. love it. Yeah, it's been... Because, you know, we can all relate to animals in a way, and I thought it was great for kids to learn about history. Yeah. It's a great way to learn about history. You might not be able to kind of understand what war is and what World War II was and that events, but if you can learn about a dog that was like a hero during that war, kind of maybe makes you more interested in learning about the history around yeah. it and the time period and how things were different and so it's kind of, I think it's kind of a gateway to history yeah. that we can all relate to. Well, I have to say, I learned something from this. And as someone who has, I don't think, ever lived in a house that didn't, that didn't have a cat in it, like 45 Lucky years Lucky girl. Of, of cats, yeah. Lucky. I, I learned that from this, that cats don't meow to anyone else but humans. That's true. Now, of course, I didn't know that because... You know, I've never, I don't know what cats do by themselves. I don't, <laughs> right. I don't follow Not them there. around. I mean, I'd love to put a camera on them and see where they go. And I suddenly thought, even when they're in a different room, just shouting, that's for me. They're mm-hmm. expecting me to come in and find out what's bothering them. Yeah. And one of mine was shouting in her sleep the other day. Literally she was like, meowing in her sleep. Meowing in her sleep. And I thought, she must be dreaming about me. <laughs> It was fun doing the in-between sections that have all the trivia things like that because I learned a lot while I was writing the book, you know, and I just put all my favorite bits in. That's, I mean, is that the author's dream? Like, all my favorite cats, all my favorite trivia bits, all in one book. That's 
that was my dog. So yeah, that yeah. Oh, he's a Scottish cat as well, little Pyro. Pyro, who, the flying cat of World War Two. Who flew more missions than a lot of humans did, which I just think people thought he was a good luck charm. Yeah. So they'd tuck him down their bomber jacket and they'd smuggle him on the plane and they'd fly with him. So <laughs> I just there's a lot of superstitions about cats out there, which is very interesting. Yeah, there's something interesting about cats is that they do seem to have this weird gendered thing even still and I don't quite understand why because I know women that love dogs and I know men that love cats but cats are still seen as quite a feminine like a pet feminine pet and dogs are seen as quite a masculine pet and it's it's weird I think but and maybe that goes back to the idea of witches I have a very close connection with my black cat scout he's like my little He's my familiar. You're familiar. I was going to say that. He's my familiar. No, he's just, he just, I, you know, animals in general, and I think cats have a special thing for just an intuition. If they know something's bothering you or something, I mean, if you've had a bad day or you're not feeling well, do you find that your cats kind of are a little bit more, more around you? They pay pay more attention to you or something like that. My cats do. When I'm not very well. Yes, they hang around me all the time. They kind of have a sense that you're down. I always get a bit worried about that because cats who live in old people's homes that will go and sleep in the room of the elderly people that are ill and sometimes almost the cat is a prediction of who might die. There's a one in my book about that, Oscar. So when my cats sleep with me (laughs) when I'm in and I think, oh my God, I hope I'm not really I hope they can't smell death. It's such a a great story, that Oscar story, because you would think, oh yeah, there must be, there's a cat... He he's not the friendliest of cats, yeah. so he doesn't really like to be pet that much and stuff. But if someone is kind of nearing their end of life, he'll kind of go on their bed and kind of curl up and purr. And you would think people must be scared to see this cat approaching them, but people find it really comforting. It's kind of like he's helping them transition to another plane or yeah. something. And the families are so appreciative that they mention the cat in obituaries. There's like a plaque to him on the wall. I mean, they love this cat. It just he helps people through. A difficult time, yeah. you know, and I think that's an amazing story. Oh, absolutely! A, f- a friend of our family was in a hospice towards the end of her life, and they allowed pets to be taken in. That's so great. And she didn't have any pets, but one of the other women in there had a dog that used to come in, and the nurse said that everybody, everybody, pet up Aww. for the for the time after the dog went in. It was just genuinely. Yep. Because actually, the, the stroking is, is, is really good for you It does. It calms it? you down. Yeah. There are studies that prove that it lowers yeah. your heart rate and your blood pressure and everything, like just stroking a pet or having one around. And um, yeah, they're, they're, they're amazing animals. It's just, I really feel everyone should experience the unconditional love of a pet yeah. sometime in their life. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Although, I think if you want fully unconditional love, you do have to go for a dog, don't you? (laughs) This is always slightly conditional with cats. Sometimes they're like, hey, I'm just not in the mood. It is very interesting. People have asked me, you know, what are the differences between dogs and cats? And when I do read the the stories about the dogs, it, it is, they do have a special connection. I think cats do too, but there's something about the dog-human connection that is unique in itself, you know? So there was one animal that I wrote about, one of the dogs, Antis, and when his, his pilot master was off and didn't return from a mission, he would go off to the end of that runway and he would not eat, he would not sleep, he was waiting for him to come back. I mean, 
I'm trying to think. I love my cats. I know they love me, but I don't think Scout is going to wait at the end of a runway. No. <laughs> well, here to, we are in Edinburgh. to return. Uh, <laughs> most famous animal from Edinburgh, of course, Greyfriars Bobby. And I think, yeah, my cats would. Sometimes if I don't get up to feed them straight away, they just go over to the neighbor's house, try and get some stuff off her. I, I don't it. think I'd even need to get as far as being buried yeah. before my cats would have run away to somebody else yeah dogs they're, come with loyalty don't yeah. they they're all special in their own ways so. yeah I mean oh, don't get me wrong I do love them even though they are massive pain. so what else have you got on the horizon apart from your new book I am writing two more books for Scholastic which I'm really interested how in how the hell do you have the time Kimberly? it's a little bit crazy but I love it I just I really when I, once I get into it I just I just can't stop writing yeah. I wrote two of my books while I was a graduate student in university wow so it, that was a little crazy I don't recommend doing that so um my next two books one is not about animals it's called generation hope it's about young activists around the world under 19 who are doing something to save the planet and make the world a better place it's really inspiring and i'm i'm trying to find kids from all different countries and it's i've got kids as young as six who are out there doing something that's going to be a really interesting book it really is we need to talk again when that comes out and then the other one is the third title in the rebel series rebel animals so um so yeah I, I'm a busy girl for you the next really six are. months or so. Yeah, it's all good. But you know, I just I just love nonfiction. It's always been my favorite genre. Even when I was a kid, I preferred reading nonfiction. Me too. You know, in, in fact, I read so much nonfiction that it's kind of killed fiction for me because I read it and I think, oh, well, it was good, but it didn't really happen. Yeah, I, I know. There's something. There's something added if you know that's a real story. Yeah. You know, and some of the things. I swear, if you if you wrote that as a book of fiction, people wouldn't buy it. People They'd be like, it, yeah. "That would never happen." Exactly and stuff, but that. you're like, "It really happened." And for me, that just makes it so much more interesting. Absolutely. So, yeah, you just can't make up real life. No. <laughs> Nothing beats real life. So, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for it's having really me. It's lovely talking to another cat lover. Hello, we, and by we, I mean Hannah. Hello. And Jen. Hello. And me. Are joined by Susie K. Quinn, full name, best-selling author of the Bad Mother books, and she is here to tell us about The Lies We Tell Mothers, which is also the title of her latest book. Hello, Susie. Hello there. All right, first things first. Why are we lying to mothers? Well, I think... We are lying to mothers to make them feel better. We say these things, you know, when people are pregnant or they've just had a baby, oh, you know, it's going to get easier or this is going to help your labour or, you know, things like that to kind of help mums feel that it's not that bad because we don't want to tell the horrifying truth of actually this is going to be awful. So we just tell these sort of nice white lies to (laughs) make everything seem nicer. Does it work (laughs) that way, though, or is it more that we end up making them feel inadequate? I suppose it depends on the lies, really. (laughs) So one of the lies in the book is about when you're at the end of your pregnancy and you just really, really, really want to give birth, you hear all these things that you can do to, like, speed along, you know, to get into labour. So one of the lies is you can eat pineapple or spicy curry to bring on the labour. That's probably just a nice thing to... Oh, you can feel like you're doing something. And it probably doesn't work like there's absolutely no scientific evidence at all but it just kind of makes people feel like oh they're in you know they're in charge of things and is it conspiracy by pineapple manufacturers (laughs) 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 so basically you need to find out whatever company sells both pineapple and and spices for curry if there's one that sells both they're behind the whole thing (laughs) that'll be dr rotka yeah Yeah, absolutely they do everything they do everything 
the other thing that I hear that people say about stuff like that is having sex. Is that a lie? Have you said, they, I've forgotten they said that. Uh, yes, it's definitely a lie because we tried that as well and it didn't work. But the I think it's all to do with sort of like cervical, sorry, cervical, too harsh, harsher word to hear on uh, this time of oh, the night. No, not at all. Um, it's, um, we don't know what time people are listening to this. Yeah. If they wake up to cervical, well, God bless their day. <laughs> God bless their day. So it's all about, I think, cervical prodding, really. So it's kind of anything that moves the cervix around. And that's that's where the, the spicy curry is supposed to be. It's supposed to move your intestines to kind of right. jiggle things around. I don't know what the pineapple's all about, but... So there you go. I'm going to start See. referring to intercourse as cervical prodding. Cervical <laughs> yeah. prodding. That's sexy. That is sexy. <laughs> I love that when you're talking about lies that we tell women during pregnancy, you don't refer to pregnancy, you call it nature's shitstorm. <laughs> is that Ooh. more of the truth? <laughs> well, it was for me. I mean, some people absolutely love it, but I didn't. It was. I found it sort of miserable and debilitating. You're just like an ill person, really. And you sort of think, you know, your body's a good design and then... Well, in my case, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, I felt like everything's supposed to work, isn't it? Nature, it's supposed to be doing things right. And then it just doesn't. Like, all the things during pregnancy that happen are kind of just, like, a terrible, terrible design. Like, you you know, you can't sleep for most of it. The, the baby kind of squashes all sorts of things around so they don't work properly. It sort of loosens um, because of the hormones flowing around. You get ill all the time. You get colds all the time because you're... It's something to do with um, lowering your immunity so you, your body doesn't attack the baby. And, uh, yeah, it's a massive, massive shitstorm. <laughs> Just the act of getting it out is a pretty massive design fault, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. But excellent point, Hannah. Yeah, it's a terrible, terrible design. Who would make that Who would up? do that? It's fucking silly. <laughs> Don't yeah. they like babies as well? I mean, a friend of mine told me this. I assume it's true. that They, they actually like... They feed off you. They like suck the calcium out of oh, yeah. your bones. Yeah, and yeah, your yeah. teeth go yeah. weird. And your hair falls out. Yeah. Oh, you forget all this, don't you? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely Parasites. Oh, I yeah, don't forget. Exactly. It's on my long list of things that it was a great reason not to have a baby. I've still got <laughs> loads of hair and okay Yeah, teeth. you have got a luxuriant head of hair. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, it's true. Your hair falls out. You're, um, you're, it's sort of leaching vitamins and minerals from your body. So it, it. Most people end up like iron deficient and depressed and miserable. And then you get these big iron tablets that are like huge. I can't really... Well, think of a good radio description. They're this big, guys. You must They're be like good horse at, tranquilizers. Like horse tranquilizers. Susie's holding up a fist. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so they kind of make you really constipated and miserable, and then yeah, it's all it's all terrible. Um, it's not it's not all terrible, but a lot of it's terrible. No, it sounds it. Wowzers! What is your favourite lie that you were told, and how did you discover that people had been fibbing? Oh, a favourite lie. Um, favourite is a difficult one isn't it because they're all sort of things that I now resent <laughs> <laughs> I mean the one I most enjoyed writing was about the baby blues uh, so the the lie is that baby blues only last a few days basically I got like this really really serious hot chocolate addiction and it sounds, sounds can weird. I ask the hot chocolate the drink or hot chocolate the band um, <laughs> hot, <laughs> hot chocolate the band miracles <laughs> where are you from you sexy well, baby you say that because I'm always seeing women with those t-shirts that yeah, like, started yeah. with a kiss they so. could be addicts yeah could be complete hot chocolate addicts is in the band no it's the, the drink and I basically had like oh like five cups of hot chocolate a day but not just like like normal hot chocolate like like triple strength hot chocolate and then I'd get really angry if I went into Costa and I'd say I want a strong hot chocolate I want a really really strong hot chocolate this is how many scoops and I'd sort of talk them through like I want five scoops you know and then they changed the recipe and it went up to six 
And if people didn't do it, and sometimes they didn't, I'd get really furious. I'd be like, I'd have a sip and I'd be like, what is this? What have you done? And then on top of that, I had chocolate bars as well. <laughs> like really, like, you know, green and black's like 70% kind of thing. And it turns out chocolate has something like, um, something like morphine in it or something similar. So... It makes you produce serotonin, doesn't it? Yeah. I yeah. think that's an actual fact. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, don't I mean, it, it has up. a similar effect on you to all the things that you like, can get addicted to. Yeah, like, like dopamine stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. So, so if in high enough quantities, <laughs> if you, you can get like something like an effect out of it. The baby blues, did it turn out that you were drinking all that chocolate to combat it? I, I think so. I think so. Because I, I think a lot of the time when people... There's sort of quite specific things to say that you've got baby blues. So if you can look at your baby and smile, it's kind of like, oh, you haven't got it, you know. But if you can't, if you look at your baby and feel nothing, then you're sort of diagnosed with baby blues. But I'm sure a lot of people get somewhere, something in the middle, you know, which I think Mm. is what I have, which is some kind of like massive hormone crash where you feel miserable, but you're not absolutely depressed, don't love your baby kind of thing. Just self-medicating at costers. Exactly, just just self-medicating, yeah, exactly. The book is split into three sections. So we've got part one, Nature Shitstorm, which covers pregnancy stuff. Part two, Change or Die, There Is No Third Option, <laughs> which is about when you've got a newborn. And part three, To Suffer Is To Grow, which is to do with your body and then as the kids get a bit older. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. How did you come up with all the different lies that you found in there? I, well, basically, um, I wrote the book without thinking any of the lies but my publisher asked me to write this book so they just said write it and I really wanted to come up with the concept before but they said no 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 just just write it my he was a lovely guy and he um he said just just write it and it'll come it'll come at the end and I really did not believe him at all and didn't trust him but I wrote it and then at the end I was still struggling like I need like some kind of concept um and my sister read it and she just said I've got it it's just lies we tell mothers just make it all a lie so then I went back over the material and, and put it in when you say lies we tell mothers, who is we? Is that other women? Is it your own mother? Is it society? Is it doctors? No, oh, I suppose it's uh, it's all of those, isn't it? It's, it's, so it's other women and society, I suppose, but more other women, more other women being kind. Like, you know, it's really not that bad. And, you know, I remember when... Um, when I just had Lexi and we were in this paternity group, so there were, like, five of us, and there was one woman that hadn't had a baby yet, and... Um, so one of the other mums said to me, so um, what do we do? Do we just kind of go along with this big lie that it's fine, the labour's fine and it doesn't hurt and, you're, and you'll just get through it? And we were all like, yeah, yeah, let's just do that. Because the, the truth of it would just would, would have just felt just incredibly rude to say, like, oh, my God, it was like the worst day of my life, the worst day of my life, and it was so painful and I wanted to die. You know, it just, it would have felt too too cruel. I'm really sorry if anyone was listening to this and they're, like, just about to give birth or or thinking about having kids and, well, off. you say that, but I would rather be armed with the facts. Yeah, I, I wish I was, actually. The, the, some of the lies I see, the kind of the kindness, but the Labour one, I could have done with a, a bit of a... I wish someone had told me. I've got a twin sister, and she had a baby after me. You know, I told her, like, the full unvarnished, like, hypnobirthing is, like, rubbish. You know, it's, 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 it hurts, it hurts. And she actually got... I had a cesarean in the end, and so she actually got further along in the Labour than me. So I was complaining about quite an easy bit of labour and I was still saying like it's awful and so she got to like the next bit the sort of there's a certain centimetre measurement but she got she got to like advanced labour and I said well what was it like and I was what I was with her during the labour so it looked it looked awful um, <laughs> and, uh, and she said well it's a bit like someone 
vomiting boiling acid into your insides. And I do want to make the distinction between acid and boiling acid because it was like boiling acid. But, you know, for some people are fine with labour as well. You know, some people have a really... Some people do breathe through it and it's easy and they're bendy people who... It all flexes open and, you know, it's all okay. Well, I read somewhere, and again, this... Or people have said this to me, that, that, you know, when you have a baby, you instantly forget the pain. Is is that Mm. also a lie? Um, Yeah, I think that's a lie. Right. Yeah, definitely. But then I had a cesarean, so I didn't even go through the the worst bit. But I think probably it's from the remembering from the first bit of labour I think it's the pain is so bad that you almost mentally black out so it's not so much the forgetting exactly it's more like mm. the memories weren't able to form themselves because you yeah. were too busy uh, like I have coping. A friend, sorry I interrupted you I have no, a friend no, 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 who, um, who had uh, she's got two kids now but her first one she had like a genuinely like pretty traumatic time of it mm. and afterwards for a, she was kind of like it was still, she obviously remembered it and there was a bit of like, she was kind of like, it was so bad, I don't know if I would want to do it again. Yeah. But at the same time, she was like, your body genuinely wants you to forget because yeah. if you didn't forget, yeah. basically no the human would. race would die out. Yeah, yeah. Although I think the second birth is supposed to be easier, I've yes. heard. Having That's a lie in this book I've been reading called Lies We Tell ah, Mothers. Second child, second child is easier. Ah. But I think that makes <laughs> better, sense. You check. probably know better than me. <laughs> well, they do think so, wouldn't you? Apparently, don't they? The, yeah. I think it's supposed to be like if you actually give birth, it all stretches out and. Oh, say, isn't yeah. everything like absolutely mash up after the first one? So the yeah, I think one, so. Sorry. Yeah, go on, Mickey. Tell me, I'm tell me, I'm wrong. Is no, it, well, we're is both it, right. In fairness, we're both we're right. We're both right. It's very technical. Um, second pregnancies are more straightforward. Right. Second yeah. births always happen quickly. Right. I wanted to talk about your Bad Mother series because I think just the fact that you're writing something called Bad Mother, and I know it's all tongue-in-cheek and you're a very funny writer, but it clearly indicates that there is this certain idea of perfect mumdom that mothers and women feel they have to live up to, or anyone who's, who's... you know the verb to mother anyone who's doing that feels they have to live up to yeah sure, sure. and yeah. I just wondered how you feel we could maybe combat that so people don't feel like they're letting themselves and their kids down quite as much yeah I, I, it's a really really interesting question so so I know what you're saying the kind of the kind uh, by sort of using phrases like bad mother we're kind of like you know saying like oh if we're not doing it perfectly then we're kind of tongue-in-cheek not being good mothers or you know um personally I think I'm a great mother and I really could not care less about society perceptions about what I'm doing how I'm doing it I could not care less but I know a lot of people do I know a lot of people really Mm -hmm. do and they really feel worried that if they for example admit they drink wine every night or they admit um, that they didn't you know do something I don't know pack the perfect lunchbox or bring snacks with them or things I forget all the time you know not have wet wipes on their person all the time that people will judge them and think you know harshly of them but I would sort of throw that back a little bit and say I also think people that judge other people are the ones that worry about being judged so I mm. don't judge other people and so I would never judge someone for forgetting the, the chopped carrots or whatever so I naturally assume people won't be judging me even though they probably are <laughs> all the time but I don't think it's not something that troubles me so I suppose in a prolonged answer to your question if we want to kind of get rid of a sort of idealized version of motherhood then we should stop judging other women really would be the the easy thing every person could do to 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 do that would be not to judge other women and assume that if they're you know doing something that that they think is not being the best parent that people are doing their best in the moment they're in really fair enough Uh, I would also like to ask, my friend has just had a very lovely little baby called Milo. He's adorable. 
And having not ever had a kid myself, she's at this stage now that I would like to do things that make her life easier. What can Aww. I do? Oh, you're so lovely. Um, so how is the baby, sorry? Milo is just a month. A month old. That's a tricky one because you sort of almost, people really want to help at that age, but it's almost like not an awful lot because you can't really take the baby off the hands, really, because people get quite attached at that age. You know, yep. to the. I think bring them things like practical things like cooked meals stuff like that that uh, imagine there's a war going on and and the supplies are short <laughs> and and you can kind of drop by some nice dessert or something or something like that but and then say I'm not going to stay though because I know you're probably very tired and then just kind of read it like do they actually want some company or or were they just sitting staring at a wall quite happily and happy to carry on doing so. <laughs> I've read quite a lot that new mums get lonely because people do sort of mm-hmm, go, "I'm just mm-hmm. going to leave you to it," and I don't want to. I didn't want to intrude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a it's a really tricky one because sometimes you really. Do, it's not like you want to be alone, but you also don't want to make any effort at all. So it's sort of, um, it's a, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. And also, you're off. You're always doing something. So whenever someone knocks at the door, you're always even if it doesn't look like, like you are, you're always doing something. You're always about to wash some clothes, or about to sterilize something, or do something. It, it can feel like a bit of an effort. Although you love your friends and you love seeing them, it can feel like ah, that was kind of I planned that time to sit and watch Real Housewives Orange County. I did Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd, and we had exactly this conversation oh, about you know about what happens when somebody's died and yeah, you yeah, want yeah. to do something helpful yeah and we came to the conclusion that it's the same as when someone's mm. had a new baby mm. you go around you make him a cup of tea you yeah. do the washing up and then yeah. you go home yeah. 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 and but, you kind of just give them the opportunity to say stay if you want to stay yeah. or don't yeah Susie, where can we find you and indeed Lies We Tell Mothers? Well, you can get the book on Amazon. So it's in uh, paperback or ebook uh, on your Kindle on Amazon. Lovely. And what about you on the internet superhighway? So I am susiekquin.com and I'm on Twitter. I love talking to people on Twitter, actually. That's good fun, which is Susie at Susie K. Quinn. It's all, Susie, all the Susie K. Quins. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, it's Janet. Sorry to interrupt your listening experience. If you like what we do here at Standard Issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women, yeah, us, we know, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue and chucking some dollar our way. Thanks very much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we are literally off the starting blocks, running rings around the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. I'm going to start off with the shit this week, and that is in dude sport, but it does impact on all sport and indeed the world, so I reckon it's worth a mention. You might have seen in the news this week, not one, not two, but three reported incidents of black players in the football league who have received racist abuse via social media after missing penalties, and in some cases, from their own fans. I mean, there is not much you can say to someone who's stupid enough to racially abuse any player, let alone one of their own, but it has been good to see widespread condemnation of this. 
One of the clubs involved was Chelsea. Kel surprise! And manager Frank Lampard responded by commenting that social media platforms should be doing more to stop this kind of thing. And our pals at Kick It Out issued a statement saying they would be meeting with Twitter to discuss such incidents and what more could be done. So what I will say, harking back to what we talked about in the Bush Telegraph earlier, what we're seeing in the world right now is state-sponsored racism so while yes of course twitter is notoriously bad at taking action against these pricks the state sponsors apparently as much as the random man wanking furiously as he types or perhaps the same person who knows anymore my point is what are social media platforms really to do if government departments in this country and others are implementing explicitly racist policies it's quite depressing isn't it I interviewed Sarah Train, one of Kick It Out's professional club's equality officers, on this very podcast a while ago about such things, and it's worth a listen. I'll tweet that from my own account this week. It's more important than ever that we as fans call this nonsense out, so we're not going to stand for it. And I think, importantly, Frank, whose club issued one lifetime ban and five bans of one to two years for fans who racially abused Raheem Sterling last year, I think most importantly that the league and the clubs take the strongest action against these twats. Doc points. You're not going to be racially abusing your own players if your club loses points as a result of it, are you? Right. Before we head over to athletics, where the story is a little brighter, let me just mention that in women's football, the championship, which is the second tier, is now underway. I'm excited for Charlton Athletic this season, who have signed Renee Hector from Spurs. The top tier gets started on the 7th of September, kicking off the season with some big, big games. Manchester City play Manchester United at the Etihad Stadium and Chelsea will play Spurs at Stamford Bridge. And these are the dude stadiums for the uninitiated who might be listening to this. There are still some tickets available for the Manchester Derby, but the London Derby has sold out. You can, however, still get yourself on a waiting list. Right, athletics. So, first up, tip of the hat to US truck and field legend Alison Felix. She of six-time Olympic gold medals fame, who fought the law and the law did not win. And by law, I mean Nike which she challenged over its maternity payments, or lack thereof, to pregnant athletes. In a letter shared on social media this week, Nike told Felix that it will not apply any performance-related reduction for 18 months after an athlete becomes pregnant. This comes after Felix revealed in May that Nike wanted to pay her 70% less after she became a mother, so well done that woman. And now over to Superstar, or Britain's fastest woman, if you prefer, that's Dina Asher-Smith, who proved her chops as a contender at next year's Tokyo Olympics this week, when she came second in the 200 metres at the Birmingham Grand Prix. Shawnee Miller-Uibo finished in first place, but Asher-Smith was up against a competitive field nonetheless, including Shelly-Ann Fraser-Price, she's the 2012 Olympic champion, and the double world 200 metre champion Daphne Shippers. Asha Smith is going to be one to watch at the World Championships in Doha at the end of September and she's confirmed that she'll be going for the sprint double, which is very exciting. Big up also to Lindsay Sharp, who came second in the 800 metres, Elish McColgan, who came third in the one-mile event, and to heptathlete Katerina Johnson-Thompson, who finished in third place in the long jump. Right. That is all from me this week. Got anything to say about this or any other sporty endeavours? You can find me on Twitter, not being a prick, hopefully. And I am at Inspiragen. More next time. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of a future hell did we watch this week? 
This week we watched Fahrenheit 451, the version that has Michael B. Jordan in it, not the version that has Julie Christie in it. It was made in, I think, 2018? I believe so, yeah. For HBO. Mm-hmm. So actually technically a film, but in the way Deadwood was a film, it's like not, it's really just a television programme that they're calling a film based on Ray Bradbury's 1950s book. Have you read that? No. It's really good. I haven't read it. it I've got a little confession. I, I fell asleep during the film. <laughs> and so ironically, I just read the synopsis. Okay. <laughs> Bradbury originally said that this was about censorship because when he wrote it, you know, the McCarthy witch hunts Mm -hmm. were going. But later he changed tack and said it was about how he was worried that mass media was going to have an effect on reading, which kind of plays into that role of the snobbery that still exists about different mediums. Mm -hmm. And I'd just like to point out that, you know, everybody singly in everything we've ever watched has failed to predict that in the future, television would be fucking great. There is the X Factor, there is, that stuff exists, but television is amazing. And uh, yeah, I sometimes, that view still exists and can can jog on. Yeah, the dystopias are very much concentrated on the volume of televisions rather than the quality of television. Starring Michael B. Jordan from Black Panther, Craig, The Wire, Friday Night Lights, and Michael Shannon, who is... Absolutely terrific character actor. And some other people, none of whom I particularly knew who they were. When are we? I don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't say in this. And I'm actually not going to bother reviewing it in comparison to how it is to the book because, you know, the book was written in the 50s, so there's an opportunity to update it, which has obviously happened. The book was set, I don't know, some people tried to work it out and said it was about 1999 which would have been like 40 years in the future from when it was written. Maybe if it's 40 years in the future, maybe it's 2050. But that said, there isn't, the tech doesn't suggest we're a long way into the future. But again, there has apparently been a second civil war. Uh, so perhaps technology went backwards. This sounds very much like Equilibrium from last week. It felt it? very much like Equilibrium yeah. from last um, week. But I'm not giving this any credit for saying that, that, that the future was going to be fucked and there might be a second civil war because it was only made in 2018 and even a baby in a pram could notice that we're fucked. So. <laughs> baby in a pram for Prime Minister, yay! Fahrenheit 451, incidentally, is the temperature, at, apparently, which book paper will spontaneously combust. That's... I've actually read some science behind that that says, well, it's not quite 451, it's somewhere between 44 and 470-something, depending on the paper. But there you go, that's where it's from. It's weird that they're making a reference to it spontaneously combusting well, when they actually pour the kerosene yeah. over it and set it on fire. Yeah. Pointless. Absolutely. Like so much of the film. Yeah, here we go. Um, tell, us a, tell us a bit about it, Hannah, and I'll just get myself some 40 winks. <laughs> Basically, books are bad. You know, thinking is bad. So uh, the title's open with them burning books, uh, which two of my favourite books were actually on fire during the title sequence. The title sequence was my favourite bit of the whole film. It was really long. Yeah, Yeah. Um, but As as I Lay Dying went up in smoke, which is an amazing book. A Hundred Years of Solitude went up in smoke. Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, which is one of my favourites that went up in smoke. And so basically that's the plot. Michael B. Jordan's character and Michael Chan's character are both uh, what they call firemen. It's interestingly, because of the way firemen work in this, they can't, they can't degender it to firefighter because that is literally the opposite of what they do mm-hmm. in this. Uh, they are seeking books and setting them on fire. There are no women in the force anyway. There aren't, as far as I can see. 
And that's basically, you know, in the same way that these things happen. Michael B. Jordan starts to question why he's doing what he's doing, finds an underground and gets involved in that. Do they have eye drops in the same way that they were taking prosium? I think that's it. So they literally can't see the truth, Hannah. They literally can't. Jen's just frowning. That was quite interesting that, again, this kind of intellectual snobbery that exists in stuff like this. Is if every time you came across someone who was hoarding books, Mm. right? They're always hoarding Kafka or Dostoevsky or, you know, Hemingway. And don't get me wrong, if I had to save books, I'd say a farewell to arms. But nobody ever in it saves other sorts of books. Never Twilight, do you? Nobody saves a, a John Osborne or a Stephen King or an Anne Tyler or a Marion Keyes. You know, the kind of books that people actually read a lot and enjoy, which mm-hmm. I find a bit strange. I asked my fellow what book he would save if they were all going to be set on fire and he could save one. And he said, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which tells you all you need to know about Gary Sinanis. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was actually thinking about what I, what I would save if I could save 10 books. And then I was really, really horrified with myself about how few of them were by women. <sighs> I mean, I'd save Wuthering Heights, obviously, into Kill a Mockingbird, but the rest was very much cocky, is all I can call it. Cock heavy. Yeah. You're going to fit right into dystopia. I am. Tell us who cities. That's got to go in the bag. Confederacy of Dunces. That's got to go in. Well, I am going to balance that by saving my entire Jilly Cooper shelf, regardless of the fact that it is very problematic. <laughs> but she also makes me laugh, and I've already read them about six times. So, you know, that familiarity that would be comforting when the rest of the world is on fire. Some Hilary Mantel. Yeah. You know when people do up houses... Renovate? Renovate houses, and they're always stripping back to, like, the period features. There is an argument for the fact that we are entirely wiping out the 20th century of architecture by doing that, by saying that only things that are more than, like, like Victorian or pre-Victorian are worth salvaging. Bit of shit after that, though, isn't it? I don't know. I've got got a soft spot for brutalist architecture of the 60s. I I certainly like like Art Nouveau and Art Deco, which are both 20th century movements. Okay. I quite like the the walkie talkie building. It's the thing in London that looks like a walkie talkie. The cheese grater. It goes out like that. Yeah, I think that's the one. I think that's the one I call the cheese grater. Right. I thought it got called the one. I call it uh, Stephen. Yeah, well, that is its name, Mickey. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and going back to that thing about intellectual snobbery, it's quite interesting. They drop a reference to Nicholas Ridley in this without explaining who Nicholas Ridley is, which I thought was quite interesting. They said, I mean, Mickey might fall asleep by this, but he's talking about, you know, because so. it's all about mixing up history, which is interesting as well, like the memory hole or, you know, the Guardian. You know, this idea that you can rewrite history. Nicholas Ridley, of course burned at the stake by Queen Mary. I'm just going to nod because yeah. you know your history better than me. I'm exactly. Not with you. But they don't explain that in it. They just say, oh, the Mad Queen when she was set fire. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's kind of... This film is pitched very much at people who it thinks its audience is quite clever, which is good. With a high tolerance for boredom. But it's so boring. <laughs> I cannot believe, I cannot believe that something that has, you know, HBO, a really good story... A promising young actor that can do loads of different stuff and, like, a really solid character actor can be as dull as this fucking film is. Um, It's got stuff to say about fake news. It's got stuff to say about editing fact and mixing fact and fiction. The stuff about Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin did start the fire service, but obviously the fire service wasn't 
something that set things on fire. It was something that was going to stop it. Can I also add its twist is so obvious that even though I fell asleep in the first 20 minutes, I'd already worked it out. Yeah, yeah. I I I thought it was quite interesting. Like, I mean, it says a lot of stuff about editing books. I thought that's because, funnily enough, I was literally having a conversation with the brilliant Sam Wanfer when we were in Edinburgh about editing books. And actually, interestingly, Fahrenheit 451 was edited to be put out on the school curriculum and Ray Bradbury objected to it. For why? Because, you know, there must have been words or sentiments or something in it that they didn't want people to know. Huckleberry Finn is a really problematic book because it's got some really problematic language in it. Yes. But if you remove that language from it, is it Huckleberry Finn? Or is it a sanitised 20th century version of what we want people to think? Yeah, it's a rewriting of... Of where it was in it in the historical pantheon, I suppose. Yeah. It's a bit mad, isn't it? The idea that you're going to put a book about censorship on the on the curriculum and then you're going to censor it. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I can There's, understand why he might yeah. take umbrage with that. Because another book that I really love that would absolutely definitely, you know, if I had time to save it, would be Look Home with Angel, which Thomas Wolfe written like at 1920s. Absolutely riddled. All in reported speech, but absolutely riddled with offensive words. But it's not on it's not on the curriculum. And yet it is genuinely, absolutely amazingly written. But I don't know how I feel about taking those words out because then it it, it loses some level of authenticity about what people genuinely spoke like. There's mm. a lot of N words in To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. That's yeah. been on the curriculum for a squillion years and obviously very much should be. So what is it if what they're saying is on, in inverted commas, the right side of history. Is that OK? Well, I think maybe the answer in with To Kill a Mockingbird is that everybody who uses the N-word is a bad character. Yeah. Whereas in something like Look Home with Angel... That's kind of what I meant, but yeah, I didn't articulate it very it's, well. And Huckleberry Finn, it's just commonly used verbiage. Yeah. Anyway. OK, so wherever there is, are we nearly there yet? Oh, God, I hope not, because it's really fucking boring. I don't want to go there. Like, crazy boring. I really don't have a lot to say about this, except there are basically no women in it. It's got, and I think this probably sums this film up for me, it's got a reading of Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, which is an absolutely beautiful poem, and it's, like, read by a robot. It's not read by a robot. It's read by someone who's learnt it. But that is where it loses its joy. It's read by rote rather than read by Oh, is that the amazing man who says, go on, turn to page 12, pick a line, I can say anything. Yeah. Yeah. And Song of Myself is amazing, you know. And interestingly, going back to my earlier point about how people are really snobby, like, I'm going to discount Americans and I'm going to discount people in the gay community because both of those groups of people love Walt Whitman. But I know who Walt Whitman is because of Dead Poets Society, a mass media thing. Yeah, I was going to say Mad Men. He gets a big mention in Mad Men as well, doesn't he? Anywho. And also in my English literature course, <laughs> but there you go. No, we didn't get, we didn't have Whitman. But then again, I read As I Lay Dying at school and I fucking loved it. Oh, it was uni rather than school, school. I did an American literature module. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. It was well good. I did history and I had to read fucking Das Kapital. <laughs> anyway, um, the long and short of it is how they're saving literature is by memorising books, which makes me laugh a lot because I'm exactly the sort of person that would want to do that. But I'm also exactly the sort of person that would be able to say, you know, when they're introducing and he goes, hi, I'm James Baldwin. And he goes, hi, I'm a farewell to arms and I'm I'm uh, this and I'm this. And I would be, hi, I'm a very hungry caterpillar because that literally <laughs> is all I have to contribute towards this. 
I'd read. I'd want you to read to yeah. me. I'd want you to read to me. Is there a Cassandra moment at all? Well, I don't think you can merit Cassandra moments in Is things it that, that were lib- made this recently, to be honest. I think it might be that libraries are more exciting than this film. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely that. Jen, we watch this because you love a bit of Michael B. Jordan, mm. so tell us your thoughts. I mean, he's the highlight of it for me. Yeah, it, he... I mean, he's really nice to watch, isn't he? He's a very good actor as well, but it's dull as fuck, wasn't it? He really was the only good thing about this film. No, Michael Shannon's great. So mm, I didn't like his... I mean, obviously, you're not supposed to like his character, but it's just really obvious, no matter how good an actor is. I found... Yeah. There's a couple of things I found quite odd about He was about beaty, him. right? That's, I'm getting it right. He was He's like his mentor that yeah, he shits on him. Hey, trope alert. Yeah, sorry, Jen. So they were very much like sort of weird like frat bros at the beginning <laughs> like salamander hoes yeah it was a very odd kind of uh vibe at the beginning they were um, literally just setting fire to things with testosterone mm. yeah and then the other thing i found it's the temperature of michael b jordan's pants by the way fahrenheit 451 <sighs> jen just spontaneously combusted anyway <laughs> let's not think about michael b jordan's pants let's think about the issue at hand, which the other thing I found really odd was, I don't know if they explained this or if they just did it really badly or if it's just because I was trying not to fall asleep and Michael B. Jordan was the only thing keeping me going. Why? Do, also, in all dystopia, basically, what I don't understand is they do a, they have a thing, they have like a thing that they're pursuing, like burning books or, you know, not having emotions or whatever the fuck Raising they're doing. Women. Exactly. Yeah. And then... They're very much for that. That is very much their MO. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, I don't think I want to burn books anymore. Where does it come from? Where is the motivation? I know the woman burnt herself, but, like, he was being weird before that. I don't think he'd seen many books before, had he? But but why? It just doesn't make sense. Well, also, because by the end, it established that his backstory wasn't true. Oh, by the way, his backstory wasn't true. Oh, and I'd worked it out. So his, yeah. his his dad was not a fireman, but an eel. Mm. So it maybe it came genetically. A, a genetic eel. Yeah, maybe. Not even mention the eels. That's the first mention of the word eel. Yeah. Why were they or called the, eels? Or the dark nine. Fucking hell, what score are you giving it? <laughs> a dark nine. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm giving it... How many Arnie's? Is it a good film, Arnie's? Oh, one. Minus Arnie's. Yeah. Oh, it's just Give awful. MBJ two. No. Just for MBJ. No. No, I'll just... I Make mean, better choices, Michael B. Jordan. There's other but stuff you can watch him in. If I was going to be... Like, if I was going to watch Michael B. Jordan stuff, I'd watch Friday Night Lights again. Oh, maybe not the wire. <laughs> anyway. Don't even talk about it. Um, <laughs> Where's Wallace? Uh, oh, no! <laughs> Sorry, dear. God, there's just going to be sobbing. Yeah. Um, no one bring up a picture of a kitten now. So what about, no, get to the chopper. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe two, I don't know. I, I, I feel like it's unfair to judge something that's predicting, like, the future from, like, ten minutes ago. Although, to be fair, you know, if I could predict the future, it would be... Even in 10 minutes' time, it will make writing the Bush Telegraph a lot fucking easier. That is true. And I'm going to project this on a massive skyscraper with loads of little emojis. Yeah. I'm going to say one on both fronts, to be honest. Do do better, HBO. I mean, usually you do, to be fair. But <laughs> Maybe it's an excellent dystopian movie because the future is proving quite disappointing. 
Yeah, but I, I mean, I would hope that at the very least, if we're like scouring the bleak earth looking for food, you know, that at least might be exciting. And this yeah. is just tedious. Sexy pavement luncheon. Here yeah. we come. Mm-hmm. What are we watching next week? Please, can it have some women in it? Yeah, let's watch um, Never Let Me Go. Which isn't so much a dystopia as an alternate timeline. Have you, anyone? Have I've you not, the no. Book? The book is really, really great. And Burn it! <laughs> Standard issue for all women.